Hello and a very warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. And this episode, we've got it all. We've got renewable energy, we've got development finance institutions, we've got power plant projects, we've got billions in rand, and I have an absolutely wonderful expert to talk me through all of this. This is Bridget Majola from CMS. And a little point of context here is that CMS were very much welcomed into the Africa Top 50 very recently ranking in at 19th. And for those not familiar, the Africa Top 50 is a list which showcases Africa's largest law firms and CMS rightfully placed in these rankings, particularly having recently advised on the aforementioned multi-billion dollar project finance deal, which was backed by the Development Bank of Southern Africa. And I'm referring here to the first ever 100 megawatt renewable energy deal under new licensing limits. And this project was worth over 200 million US dollars. So Bridget, you were, I've been led to believe, of paramount importance in this deal. So could you walk us through what made this deal so special and more so what made it a success? Hi, Thomas. Thank you. Good afternoon to you and your listeners. I don't know if I can say that I was an integral part of the team. There were multiple teams that were involved, but the deal in and of itself was quite exciting for us uh, in our team, for the firm, and also for the country. We were advising the Development Bank of South Africa, as you have mentioned, as an equity player, so not on the senior lending side of two of these solar projects, right? So it was two of them each 100 megawatts for the first time in South Africa having an off-taker that wasn't actually ESCOM. I don't know if you know the lay of the land in terms of the South African renewable energy um, sort of world. The way that our programs worked over the past couple of years is that the government invited a number of independent power producers to participate in a program to supplement the supply of power, either wind, solar, or concentrated as solar power to ESCOM, which is our national utility. And then... Much lauded, much lauded. uh, Well... <laughs> and the, the less said about that, the better. I will we'll focus on the positive renewable energy developments rather than anything else. Yeah, I mean, yeah, let's not talk about them. But uh, so normally we used to supply energy to, to that off taker. But now the government introduced a new regime which allows independent off takers. Um, who are private individuals. So we're seeing quite a few mining companies grabbing this opportunity to basically build their own power supply without having to rely on ESCOM. So it's quite exciting. Uh, And it's just below the threshold, which is 100 megawatts, which says that if you basically generate power, anyone's allowed to generate power by themselves without having to get um, a license, despite the fact that you obviously still need to connect to the grid because you need to 
supply yourself via the grid if you're going to be wheeling. Um, but you don't need the power from ESCOM. So a lot of off-takers are taking that opportunity, especially those that have huge power demands. Um, I think we're probably going to be seeing um, more mining companies, different types of commodities, uh, mining, so coal miners, for example. Maybe um, some of the guys who are doing smeltering are going to need um, their own power soon. We're seeing a lot of municipalities also moving this way. The okay. Cape Town City, Durban. Uh, there's lots of people trying to take advantage of the fact that there's an opportunity for them to take control by themselves of their own power supply. Because uh, Bridget, had- I, 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 sorry to interrupt. A couple of like <clears throat> questions here, and forgive my naivety. So where has that limit come from, that, that 100 megawatt per project? Is, is that an arbitrary number? I mean, why, why, why is there a limit? No. So what happened was... Normally, or previously in Schedule 2 of the NERSA regulations, it used to say to you that you weren't allowed to basically generate power by yourself uh, without getting a NERSA license if it was going to be over one megawatt. And then everybody lobbied and complained. And they, uh, it's a, this has been over a process over a number of years. These regulations have been around. And so there's been a whole bunch of commentary and engagement with various stakeholders over a number of years to try and lobby the government to increase that because of the rolling blackouts that South Africa. Yeah, I mean, you think it's a, it's a long time coming for a country yeah. which has faced horrendous energy shortage. And there was this kind of golden opportunity, uh, uh, you know, that, that that could have been sat here. I mean, yes. so poli- that's what... political movement being slow by its nature aside, is there any reason why it's taken us this long? Well, I think, I, th- I, I, I don't know about whether there's any other reasons other than, you know, just politics, right? Um, and I guess some people complaining about the effects that it would have um, on the grid um, or the effect that it would have on employment in South Africa. Sure, okay. okay. Um, people, it, it, so it's been, and also not being clear about how the change would affect other parts of the regulations and whether it would really be exec- acceptable and how much would actually be enough because also it doesn't help to move the limit from one to ten megawatts. If the general, if a general entity that has that has high consumption, basically requires I don't know between seventy and eighty megawatts for them to be okay, then it doesn't help to say okay, well you can generate up to ten. That's another, another drop in the ocean. Isn't yeah. It? But exactly. So a, fi- a final energy kind of nerdy question is: uh, is that limit? per power plant, for want of a better word, or is it per entity seeking to access that power? You know, you've just referenced that it was two 100 megawatt projects, so 200 megawatts in total. So does the limit affect an individual producer, or is it the the individual power plants, whether that's wind or solar or tidal or whatever, that, that produces the energy? It's per plant, Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. 
So that does allow us scalability. You know, we proof a concept at the 100 megawatt level and there's nothing in the way of, you know, replicating that once it works. Uh, I mean, talking, talking of replication, you know, we've mentioned the, the DFI angle on this, you know, uh, a specific deal. Do, do you feel like the floodgates might be opening here on the financing side of things? I mean, DFIs, particularly African DFIs, have always said that they will fund the right transformative projects. And access to power i mean that's fundamental you know electricity uh you know how to run sanitation programs every education everything comes back to energy so do you think the dfis are going to be all over this one or do you still think they're feeling things out no i definitely think that they're going to be all over it they've already been all over energy in general um the dfis in South Africa in particular, and I think the ones regionally as well have been very supportive of South Africa's energy transition from even before 2012 when we started with the REAP program. They were also supportive of PPPs. They've been supportive of infrastructure development throughout the the continent. And I think that they'll definitely be more supportive now um, in respect of trying to support what I have seen them refer to as black industrialists um, participating in this particular in this new wave of energy supply. So trying to get more black developers involved, uh, black engineers, technicians involved in independent power generation and just participating in the, in the industry and the various sectors that will be affected in general. So, sure. so I, I definitely think that it's going to be quite an exciting thing for them to still participate in because they are still involved in the various rounds of REAP as well. Um, like hugely supportive and I think their financing is quite competitive and I think that we're seeing the DFIs participating a little bit more formally than just dishing out loads of cash from time to time um, we're seeing them actually um, setting up structures and different funds within their own um, divisions to sort of be responsible for the implementation um of uh, either focusing on infrastructure and scaling up that infrastructure development uh, within the country and possibly the continent. And I guess channeling that funding in there, I know the DBSA has definitely done that um, with the infrastructure fund sitting within the auspices of the uh, DBSA. And I know that, um, which this is all public, There's also the Green Climate Fund, which the Development Bank of South Africa is an implementing arm of. There's other DFIs that have also set up specific funds to sort of either support the scaling up of the energy transition um, by also monitoring the ESG uh, compliance and funding and supporting entities that are going to be compliant with that yep. or sort of coming up with products that are going to be suitable 
um, to sort of incentivize companies and corporates to comply with ESG requirements as well. So I think they're always on the edge, uh, well, trying to be on the cutting edge, <laughs> of the, as cutting edge as uh, humanly possible. For, for I think we're getting there. You know, there's 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 certainly, you know, appetite for it. And, and you know, I think programs like that do partly put to bed the debt is debt argument. You know, debt isn't, you know, created equal, you know, when you're looking at overcoming, you know, socioeconomic um, challenges, a lot of that is resting upon access to capital. Now, if DFIs can justify lower cost of access to capital, lower cost to service it, pair that with developmental support, you know, structures, uh, guidance and expertise, then I think we're we're really on to something. I'm keen for your insight. We've had you know a, a lens on South Africa uh, with this regard because of the uniqueness potentially of the licensing uh, uh, procedures. Is this DFI involvement in renewable projects, to your mind, a pan African? opportunity as well? Are there, are there other jurisdictions that you think are really leading the way here or, or poised to lead the way? Um, I think that the DFIs have been involved in other jurisdictions in, in terms of supporting um, their developments, uh, their power developments, their power generation developments. I know that we sell some power to some of the neighbouring countries or share some power with some of those countries. I know that um, we definitely support some of the um, solar projects in some countries, uh, like maybe at a, a slightly smaller scale uh, in Zambia, in Ghana. Um, I think there's uh, there've been some DFRs looking at. Um, <clears throat> I think Nigeria as a potential destination as well. Um, to support um, their power as well. Um, yeah, I, I, de- I don't think that the DFIs are only looking at um, South Africa. And you know that obviously the DFIs and some of the commercial banks are always looking at um, Mozambique from a gas-to-power perspective. For sure, um, yep. So there's, I, I think they're always looking at opportunities to support different countries in different ways, um, whether it's from an infrastructure perspective or from uh, a power generation, transmission or distribution perspective. Um, I don't know if um, in some of the countries they've also got got similar restrictions like we had in that they are structured necessarily in the same way that we have, where there's... um, a national off-taker, which makes it very difficult to move, um, or if they've got more dynamic, I think it might be quite similar, or if they've got like sort of a dynamic sort of mix like they have in Australia, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I think it's a real, I think it's a bit of a mix. I think maybe out there, um, and if a listener <laughs> comes across it, please do share. I think maps of different regimes is quite interesting because I think, Traditionally, the South African model is um, is a product of the fact that it had quite a well-established grid. Um, you know, historically, it was one of the most electrified African jurisdictions. And, it, and ESCOM, you know, believe it or not, it did work. Um, 
you know, for some time. So I think caps and uh, a, a really strict licensing regime may well have been born out of that. But I'm happy to be, uh, tell us in the comments, <laughs> anyone has any insight into this, please do, please do fire away. But Bridget, I'm interested, you know, your project finance uh, practices is reasonably sector agnostic. You know, we focused on the energy play here, but I'm keen for your insights in South Africa's project finance space more broadly. Is, is you know, infrastructure financing or, um, you know, large scale project, uh, project financing here as, as lively as what we're seeing in the renewable space? Are there standout performers? Is, are things starting to slow as the world kind of lurches towards a, a, a recession potentially? Keen for your, your broad take on the project finance landscape as it stands. Well, I'm seeing a lot of, it's not necessarily pure project finance as such mm. on the infrastructure side. Um, I'm seeing a, a, a lot more corporate finance, um, if if I can put it that way. But there is, there is a little bit of a project finance type models um, that are coming into place in respect of, I would say, student housing. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, South Africa struggled with um, uh, some students complaining about the availability of affordable student accommodation sure. yep. at uh, higher education institutions. So the, the, the country is trying to focus um, quite substantially on trying to eradicate that problem. So there's a lot of funding that's going into student accommodation and so, sort of trying to address that problem. There's also programs that are, and, and those are um, project financed. And then there's also a lot of social housing, a focus on uh, trying to address our social housing issues. And so that is also project financed. Um, that's quite growing, I, I would say quite aggressively. We're not seeing the kinds of numbers as what we would see in a traditional PF for energy. And I guess that's obviously because the plants are more expensive than sort of like a development would be and so that might be why but I know that there's huge amounts of money that have been set aside for that um, at DFI level we're seeing a lot of involvement at fund level um, commercial banks are also supporting um, infrastructure development in respect of those two in particular um, and so I would definitely say that there is a lot of uh, support locally for that and I know for certain that a, a lot of the commercial banks um, and some of the DFIs that do cross-border funding they're also supporting different types of products uh, that are infrastructure products um, in various countries like Mozambique, like Angola, um, like uh, also like Kenya. So there's there's a lot of funding from South Africa that is supporting infrastructure throughout the continent and also obviously um, in South Africa as well. And I, I would definitely say that a lot of that would be project financed for sure. Here's, here's a big question for us to finish with, Bridget. So we both know that kind of DFIs have developed quite profoundly between, 
you know, the last financial crisis of, of 08 and today. You know, they, they are. They're bigger. They're better funded. They're more active. Do they play a vital role in keeping the project finance wheels moving as we enter another you know, the, the, the time of commercially available cheap money may well be coming to an end, at least for, for a while. How important a role do DFIs play or stand to play in, in filling that gap when it comes to accessing cheap money on a commercial level? I mean, I do think that they play quite a role. They, they supplement what the commercial banks not that they can't do, but they're an important um, supporter of the kind of financing that the commercial banks are providing, which would be senior funding. And so because the the DFIs are always asking themselves, why are we participating in this project? What's the developmental imperative here? Because for us, the invest well, when I say us, speaking as a DFI, the investment is more than just the money. For us, For sure. it needs to be a particular objective that we need to be achieving. And so even when projects are not going successfully, the perspective of DFIs is always, well, there needs to be a bigger goal um, to this particular project to make sure that it's sustainable. Is it going to help people get housing? Is it going to help... Um, the grid become more sustainable? Is it going to help women get jobs, et cetera, et cetera? There's a, a, a whole host of other considerations. There are projects that DFIs do fund by themselves um, on a bilateral basis all the time without involving the commercial banks. And so I think that um, that's always been there and I think it, it will continue to be there as they continue to aggressively go out and look for projects that they that they can fund. It's obviously always better to go in um, with someone, but if you can't find someone that has similar values or has a similar objective in terms of what the outcomes need to be for a particular project, I don't think the DFIs are afraid to offer competitive rates to their clients and fund projects by themselves. Well, I do think these limitations being lifted in the you know renewable space do offer a really exciting opportunity. So, let's see whether it you know we're we're killing multiple birds with uh, with one stone here. You know, when it comes to access to power, increasing access to education, uh, particularly tech enabled education, I think very exciting things to come. And it was great to talk to you today, Bridget, as someone that was so involved in in one of the biggest and and one of the first. So, a very big thank you for joining me today thank you so much thomas have a good afternoon no problem and as always a very big thank you to all of our listeners and i'm pleased to say you can now find the africa legal podcast on amazon music in addition to the uh usual platforms of spotify soundcloud apple podcasts and google podcasts very happy to join Amazon Music as well. Uh, don't forget to visit us at africalegal.com for all the news, views and insights that improve your life as a modern African legal practitioner. And without further ado, this has been Tom and Bridget, and we're signing off for the Africa Legal Podcast. Africa Legal.